Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Natale Zapia, author of Traders and Raiders, The Indigenous World of the Colorado Basin, 1540 to 1859, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. Dr. Zapia is an assistant professor of history at Whittier College, where he teaches early American, Native American, borderlands, and environmental history. Professor Zapia's research explores the ways that continental trading networks, food pathways, and ecologies transformed North America over the past three centuries. Dr. Zapia's research has been supported by uh, a number of institutions, including the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Autry National Center, and the Mellon Fellowship at the Huntington Library. Hello, Nat, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, DJ. Thanks for uh, having me. Of course. It's a pleasure. I was wondering if you could start a conversation today by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so as you, as you mentioned, I teach at, at Whittier College, which is in, in Los Angeles, right outside of Los Angeles. Uh, but I'm I'm from uh, from the East Coast, from uh, from New York, where I went to school. Uh, as an undergraduate at uh, at Cornell University, and at Cornell, I, I had a chance to um, to take uh, several courses and then. Have as a mentor, uh, Professor uh, Robert Venables, who uh, taught in the American Indian uh, Studies program there, mm-hmm. and he was a historian, public public historian, who uh, worked with the Haudenosaunee, the uh, Iroquois from from us to New York, and uh, as a historian, as a historian for the tribe, uh, he, he was consulted on um, numerous land uh, land claims cases, uh, particularly amongst the uh, Onondaga Nation, which their reservation is right in between Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is, and Syracuse. And uh, he worked with uh, many of the folks to, uh, on different court cases to try to, to help the, the tribe uh, use, use history, essentially, use historical record, records and documentation to get back uh, some land, or you know, at least get back uh, a recognition from the local and state and federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for land restitution, and taking this course has really, uh, really got me obviously interested, but also really excited uh, and uh, um, just fascinated with the the topic of, of course, of Native America, but more importantly about you know, social justice uh, issues around right. uh, Indian country and and how history and politics and economics uh, collide. Uh, through, this, through that narrative of, of, of Native America and the history of Native America and how that history is so visceral and such a part of, of the struggles that uh, folks across Indian country today are, are, are dealing with. And, and, you, and again, using history is such a powerful tool to, to help um, rectify many of these and to help address many of these long-standing issues. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so as as Venable as my mentor, you know, I, I decided I wanted to, you know, continue pursuing that and and to really think about being being from uh, Long Island, New York. Never really thought about Indian country, um, but right. uh, thinking about those issues from uh, from a social again from a kind of a social justice perspective that really went beyond just Native America, but uh, all you know many different groups who have been oppressed or have been marginalized um, throughout his throughout U.S. and early American history. And, um, you know, I guess I was really interested in trying to tackle those, some of those issues as a, uh, through a historical lens. 
Right. So, um, so at Cornell, I worked at, I worked uh, a couple of different places, uh, mostly with, uh, again, marginalized communities, communities, at-risk communities, mostly uh, uh, at-risk youth in and around New York City. Uh, and then I ended up in uh, working for a bit at the, on the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota. And again, those, those issues that I mentioned that I um, first, first had, was exposed to in Cornell, you know, you really, I really saw that on, on the reservation and, and the, you know, how history um, plays such a role in, in, in the lives of, of these folks. But also how many folks on the reservation um, and across, across Indian country, again, were using history and to, and, you know, hiring tribal historians and, and other experts to help uh, preserve cultural legacies, but also, again, to help advance economic and political um, uh, initiatives, you know, mm-hmm. to protect Indian country, protect tribal sovereignty, and to protect environments, too. So, so as I worked in these different areas, um, I increasingly became interested, in, again, in using the historical lens, but also thinking of, of the environment as well, you know, thinking about environmental racism and how that uh, plays a role in in, in Indian country, but also throughout in, in, in urban areas as well. Right. right. So, um, so you know, I also so then I went to uh, graduate school at Santa Cruz, and I continued uh, thinking about these things. Uh, it, it, I started a PhD program there in history, and and I worked with uh, my dissertation advisor was Elizabeth Haas, who works on very similar issues uh, in California, in native California. Mm-hmm. She's uh, written lots of uh, works uh, on, and and worked a lot with uh, several different tribes in California on re-examining the mission history and re-examining um, the commemoration of of, um, of folks like Sarah, Sarah who's uh, mm-hmm. just was canonized right. uh, recently. And just really working closely with the uh, California tribes and, and helping them capture and, and present their own indigenous history of of, of California. Right. So, so, so basically, uh, this book um, is really a reflection you know, of all those experiences. And, I, and for me, history and, and my role as a historian um, ultimately is about connecting the the serving communities who we're writing about, but also um, getting people to think about just the those really close that history is is so present. This history is such a part of right. of the political, economic, and cultural infrastructure that we all have now. And and for me, Native America is a, is a, one of the most illuminating ways to 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 um, to think about to understand that. No, I, I agree entirely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate the answer and, so, and the, you know, your connections sure. with, the, you know, history and, you know, social justice issues. I think, um, you know, that's a lot of what kind of drew me to the subject matter as well. Um, sure. you know, I think when we look at, right, how people see the world, you know, whether you want to say sure. that, you know, worldview, perspective, or ide- ideology, all of that's shaped by history so much, right? And how history is told, how it's preserved, presented, et cetera, how it's interpreted. And uh, so so definitely I see exactly where you're coming from yeah. there. What else are you going to say? Oh, okay, sorry. No, I was going to say go ahead. Keep going. Oh, so it's to add to that, you know, 
Um, of course, the Borderlands are another mm-hmm. that's what fascinates. That's what I'm interested in, in Borderlands history because of that. You see, for the same reason, you know, the, the borders. Borderlands is really that's really where you the the you know the periphery, so to speak, really in many ways determines um, what the the heartland or the core institutions and values. You know, they they spread through the borderlands. Uh, and they're tested on the borderlands, and right, right. And you really get a sense of the, you know, you really get a sense of the human communities that are impacted by them, but also are able to shape them in, you know, in unique and and um, unexpected ways. And I think um, that's that's the, those are those little, those little niches that what I'm really interested in. And that's what, and really that's what I'm, that's kind of that's what led me to, the, to this uh, book and this this case study. Gotcha. Good. Well, how about you talk a little bit more about that, about, you know, this particular region in general. So you talked about how your, your interest in Native American, uh, in environmental history kind of yeah. developed, but how did you come to determine, you know, on this region and, and this people? Sure. Um, well, a couple of different things. Um, I mean, initially, uh, so, I mean, the other thing that interests me about Native American history, and, and as, especially as I was thinking about a topic for my dissertation was, this, this notion of hidden in plain sight, you know, that there are so many aspects of our history that are just hidden in, in, right in plain sight. And I think uh, Native American history is, definitely serves as one of those examples uh, across North America, across the Americas, you know, particularly across North America, where, you know, people don't necessarily think about Native America in a sustained way. Right. Uh, um, so so in, in that sense, uh, what drew me to this, the Colorado River, which is really what the, the book is about, the Lower Colorado, regionally speaking. Um, the Lower Colorado River is is a is a waterway that's played such a huge role in in the borderland history of the borderland and the history of of the West of the American West in particular, mm-hmm. and also northern Mexico. You know, it supplies obviously you know huge amounts of. Uh, Agricultural uh, water, right. but also uh, it feeds cities that we all the southwestern cities from Phoenix to Vegas to exactly to Los Angeles, San Diego. So, I mean, we millions and millions of people rely on on the the dams that that divert the water and the irrigation that irrigation ditches and channels that divert the water. Um, that's such a life. Uh, you know, it's like a it's a lifeblood of of and not only the West, but of course, much of the food that gets produced uh, in in these places, particularly in the Imperial Valley and northern mm-hmm. Mexico, mm-hmm. gets ex- you know gets exported all throughout the country. Okay. Um, so it's, and it's one of those things no one really thinks about the Colorado River yeah. here, even during the drought. You know, now of course is more thought of it. With people thinking more about water conservation now, but um, the Colorado River is really not. It's just kind of an afterthought. Um, so true, to, yeah, to the mainstream. And, um, so that really got me interested in thinking, you know, so what, just kind of thinking of not only the, of the, so there's this huge weight that the Colorado River, uh, you know, huge shadow that looms over, if you will, looms over all these cities so many people live in, including myself. Yet, uh, the, the early, the history of it, um, really has been limited to, Historic, you know, the historical documentation, which right. a lot of it is kind of, is obviously from the perspective of non-native people. 
mm-hmm. not edit histories. So, uh, and and much of the study, much of the work that was and incredible work that has been done on on the Colorado River, especially the kind of the early American Colorado River and colonial Colorado Rivers, has largely been done by anthropologists and archaeologists um, and ethnohistorians mm-hmm. looking at uh, non you know, what we might say non-traditional or usually the sources that historians don't go to first. So, so, um, as I saw on the Colorado river, as I was thinking about, um, projects as a place that's been somewhat overlooked in terms of, at least in terms of native, native history by historians, uh, a place that's very relevant to the lives of millions of people today, but also has this long, um, history that's been documented, just not what's so been documented in material culture and archaeology right. and, and right. oral histories. So I saw an opportunity to kind of to synthesize um, these fields, um, and then also ultimately to kind of flip the narrative to think of Colorado River from a from an indigenous perspective, and exactly. from a, to look at it from an indigenous perspective, you have to look at a much longer time frame, watch mm-hmm. along the historic time frame, and then that's where you have to start thinking about ecological time and thinking right. about the environment. So so the more I thought about it, um, you know, the more I realized I had a lot of work to, a lot of fields to try to master, and, uh, you know, I'd assemble my dissertation committee in, 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 in ways that I might not have done otherwise, which is great. So I had a uh, renowned uh, archaeologist uh, Judith Habick-Mausch, who um, is an expert on uh, proto-historic pottery in the Southwest, who really helped me get me grounded in the in the literature on on you know, on uh, material culture and, and archaeology and how to read a you know how to even read archaeological reports and right. mm-hmm. uh, just how to understand the, the vast field of literature on trade on pre-contact trade and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of things. So, and then, so, so, um, so that allowed me to, and I also had to have, uh, you know, I had to understand, uh, you know, colonial Latin America, you know, colonial Latin American history, particularly borderline history. Right. And, uh, get grounded in, in not only, of course, in, in the English language, uh, historiography, but also Spanish language historiography. And so it, it, it was one of those things that just kept, Somebody's piling on, but also it's made it more interesting and more fascinating for me. And um, you know, it, ultimately, I chose to take a, a big picture approach to the project. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, that has its downsides, but I think again, when you think of the Colorado River and and this um, this period, you have to have this. You have to have a large, kind of a larger, wider uh, lens. Right, um, right, and it's you know that you, certainly comes across in, in in your narrative and um, in how you describe this interior world, you know, the pre-Columbian interior world, and then how the the book tracks it, right? Tracks the development of you know the political economy, the social relations of you yeah. know both the the indigenous groups, and then as well as their interactions with others, you know, uh, throughout this yeah. interior world, interior world that now uh, right encompasses essentially uh, six modern. Uh, U.S. states and you know parts of Mexico, including right, Baja California sure, exactly. and uh, the, you know the northern exactly. states of the the main uh, portions. Exactly, and all those indigenous nations you know, recognized mm-hmm. by 
I mean, uh, by the U.S. in particular, um, that live along Colorado River that have, that have unique um, uh, water rights. You know, they have water rights that are different than, than their relationship with the state and federal government. You know, Indian nations have have treaty, you know, have different treaties that allow them um, different kinds of access or lack of access depending on the situation. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, that are kind of a government-to-government relationship that, that are that are um, really, well, that's what fascinated me. Was, again, it's this idea of the present. But you look at the Colorado River, the Little Colorado, and you could see all these uh, indigenous groups, they uh, are still there, you know. Right. I mean, they, they weren't, they were, they were, you know, there many, and this part of the book is about, you know, the Spanish trying to colonize and then, uh, and then and Mexico and then the U.S., um, you know, especially the U.S. trying to remove uh, different indigenous groups, and they they, they couldn't do it. Uh, they just weren't able to, for all sorts of reasons. But right. the important thing is that they couldn't do it; that they that they're that they're there still, and that they're able to assert the relative degree of political and economic um, power or autonomy, at least. Um, which, when you think of how important the Colorado River is now, it's not it's not inconsequential or insignificant. No, it's so true. Well, and your your point yeah. there, um, you said a while back, you know, that the you referred to the Colorado River as, as kind of the prize of the region. And uh, you know, I haven't. I, I, I appreciate that because I haven't really. I didn't really. I don't really think of that. Of course, um, um, you know. And when we look at the the land that was, you know, the land session from Mexico, uh, yeah. oftentimes we speak so much about the the gold, right? And of course, these these weren't things that were known when when the land was seeded. Um, they were kind of latter developments. But if you're looking at the two prizes, right? You got gold in the Sierras, and then you have right. a river. Uh, now, the Colorado River right. probably. Exactly. Functioned or factioned uh, fit more into maybe considerations on that land session. I'm not really sure because um, sure. uh, the gold itself was really you know not known at the time. But uh, no, right. I think that right. that's a great perspective, and it and um, you know I think it's one of the yep. the, per- the lenses that I appreciate that environmental history and ecological history yeah. provides. Right, it yeah. helps us to show because you can see as you track over the what is it we're covering in this book. Um, what a uh, little over 300 years, but you know, fast forward sure. 500 years, how vital the region sure, still sure. is because of the, you know, the yeah, river. Yeah. Great, yeah. great point. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think, uh, thanks. Yeah. I think that what makes it also interesting, I think is you mentioned that, you know, of course, coal, you know, the conquistador, you know, the, the conquistador mindset, right. Which is mm-hmm. obviously simplistic, uh, phrase, right. But right, there is, right. there was, you know, early colonization in Latin America, you know, there there, were, there was that element, right? And I think um, what makes for me the Colorado River interesting is 1540. I mean, that's right at the beginning. That's that's early. You know, that's just this is um, you know this is an early period of colonization mm-hmm. for for Spain, and and the fact that this, the Colorado River was recognized as a strategic right choke point, a strategic place um, that. You know, and a lot of it, obviously, like you said, the rivers are always seen that way. The rivers that connect to oceans, um, but you know, what what made it important is the the, the, uh, the, the earliest explorers, uh, Spanish explorers, you know, saw the vibrant trade. They saw the markets, the indigenous markets, and they recognized that there was a there there. You know, there was something that they could tap into, um, and that's what makes it important. It was always it always was strategic. Um, 
in one way or the other. Right. So it's not that it was, it's not that, I mean, part of my argument is it's not that this place was just uh, discovered by, you know, Europeans or non-Native people late mm-hmm. in the game because it's so far west and, you know, that's why the Native people were, were able to withstand some of the onslaught of colonialism or that's why they're still here because it happened later. They were, you know, this is one of the earliest, you know, in the 16th century, so this is, this is really early on and, and usually that early encounter equates to um, demographic declines, uh, uh-huh. cultural, uh-huh. you know, cultural um, clashes, et cetera. Um, but in this instance, you see, you know, in some ways, very different uh, interaction. Or, you know, or, or comparable to other parts where Native people uh, were able to do, to uh, maintain their autonomy and also exert some power. Of course, thing is, most native, any native groups who were engaged in the fur trade, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, the Comanches later on, you know, the Cherokees. There, there are certain native groups that were that were able to really um, that knew how to work work uh, these different colonial powers against each other. Right, right. And you know, in some ways, there, there's that comparison. There's that you know comparison that that I draw. Um, but all, in other words, it, it was unique, I think, in the sense there wasn't any indigenous state or indigenous uh, empire or indigenous um, group that controlled everything. Right. Such a diverse, culturally diverse, linguistically diverse, economically diverse place, and environmentally such a dynamic place um, that you know, migration and movement and all of these... Um, Resulting uh, trading networks that that evolved as a result of that really determined the the way people were going to interact with each other, whether right. you're indigenous or not. And let's talk about uh, I think that a bit more. We've talked about how the um, you've, you introduced us to the to the interior world, the pre-Columbian interior world, and and how the the rivers, the Colorado River, the Gila River, really the the basis of um, the networks and the relationships that exist among. Um, and that are formed amongst, you know, this very diverse, you know, region, an expansive region, uh, right? So can you talk yeah, more about yeah. what the, the interior world looked like, you know, like its social geography? Sure. Uh, what were the, what were some of the sure. people, the relationships and, you know, food systems, mobility, th- those types of things, um, that existed in this world, um, uh, pre, you know, in the pre-Columbian era? Sure. Yeah, this, this, this is the first chapter of my, this first chapter in the, in the book, which, Took the longest and is, is the longest in the book. Um, um, and for me, in many ways, it really sets the tone for the rest of the. It sets the the. It's it set the grooves, if you will, mm-hmm. the ecological, cultural, economic grooves that really determine the patterns of interaction post Columbus you know, right. in, in a post-Columbian world. And so. Well, it was really defined. I mean, you know, the I start the book. I mean, even though the books. The title is 1540 to 1859. Really, start my first chapter starts in the um, in the 14th, 13th, and 14th century, uh, where you you have um, something called the Little Ice Age, the global phenomenon, mm-hmm. which you have a kind of a cooling of the planet, and uh, and, the, and then as a result, you have these different environmental changes across across the globe, um, and in the Southwest. What you had was an increasingly drier place, 
<clears throat> you have the shrinking of, of lakes and diversion of rivers. And you, so therefore you have the movement of people, uh, dispersed, uh, across a wider territory where, you know, so groups that have lived around what is now the Salted Sea, mm-hmm. um, some of these indigenous groups now are, you know, li- living farther and farther apart due to environmental changes. And as a result of some environmental changes, also engaging in, uh, different forms of production and trade. So what, what, what the world was like, this, this interior world was like, uh, was dynamic. It was still, again, migrations, people, mobile communities moving, um, in different directions. Um, you have the, the reliance, great reliance on kind of niche product products, depending on the environment. So you have a, a huge amount of literally millions of shell beads, which are produced on the, the channel islands. Right. Um, and used as a form of currency. And, you know, and one of the things I do in the book, I, I try to, and just a sliver, really, uh, document some of the, some of the, the larger, uh, archaeological sites that, you know, find tens of thousands of beads at some of these, whether grave sites or just, uh, villages, right, that are being excavated and then pre-contact, pre-Columbian, uh, indigenous villages. And you see the, how you see, these beads, uh, you see them in California, of course, you see them up and down the coast. You see mm-hmm. them as far east as, as Texas, wow. well into Baja and Sonora and Sinaloa. So you see, you know, you see these beads that come from the Channel Islands being traded, uh, across these distances and in large numbers. So that, that, and how you know, did they, probably, that, do they probably serve like a, 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 as a currency? Um, you know, what was the, uh, what was the, the the desire, you know, for these beads, you know, as, as you sure. know, in, in this sure. vast expanse that you're you're explaining here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the this is one of the questions that that archaeologists are, you know, they're still um, looking at it and increasingly, you know, dependent on the the short answer is dependent on the, the indigenous group. So right. you can see yeah. the Chumash, for instance, who and the and the Tongva, but particularly the Chumash, who were the real were the producers of these. You know, this was their territory. This is their. This is they controlled that the production of these beads. And you know, and when I when I say shell beads, it, it, I point that out in the book is we're talking about really, really we're talking about precision. We're talking about right. mechanized. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're all handmade, obviously, but you know, mechanized they're labor. Drilled. That's they're drilled, regimented. right? Yeah, drilled. They drilled. Um, you know, and when you go on the on the, the shoreline of the of the Shell Islands. You can just see the, you know, the remnants and the kind of the, of just millions of drills, micro beads and micro drill uh, beads, and all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, products related to, to the production of that. So, you know, over a sustained period of time, people who are doing that, you know, and one one uh, bead would take, you know, takes several hours to to make and, and wow. these are you know Incredible. are a couple of millimeters yeah, um, a couple of millimeters so small they're, they're precise they're, and they're very uniform so mm-hmm. then you, again like, you look at the, as an example where you look at the material culture and you could you know without spec, you know, without being too speculative you can mm-hmm. see these are folks who are producing this for because of demand you know right. not just simply exactly, a exactly. curiosity or simply a, you know ornamental I mean obviously it's ornamental but right. um, it's used as, as a way to, to link cultures as well. So right. um, there is there are different 
standardization, you know, different archaeologists have pointed to different um, uh, measures of standardization. So, uh, but, and a lot of those, so there are records in the colonial, in the Spanish colonial documents that say, you know, um, Mojaves, for instance, who are from, the, you know, from close to the Colorado River, uh, would encounter um, Spanish Fran- Franciscans and talk about trading beads that would, you know, one horse would equal roughly a, a bead, a string of beads going from your elbow to your middle finger. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you can actually see a, a you know, some kind of a standardization. Right. And, and, and I'm not saying that, I don't think anyone is saying that it was like, uh, you know, I mentioned there was a currency that everyone followed, but right. there was a conversation. There was a, mm-hmm. there was a sophistication and a complexity that was not unlike many other parts of the early modern world. You know, and I think this this book is really a, an argument that tries to tries to meet this indigenous history on the same terms that you would meet other early modern histories. Right, right, you know, right. Whether it be Europe, Africa, Asia, you know, and and that's that's part of the critique is that um, somehow that history was, uh, you know, not as, you know, just because it wasn't as well documented, therefore you can't really draw those conclusions when right. you, know, you actually can if you look at a lot of the material culture. No, so it's so beads true. are one example. But, right, beads, you mentioned right, yeah, textiles, so, grasses, pottery. I mean, and you mentioned these things right, are mass-produced exactly. commodities within exactly. this I mean, interior world, right? Yeah. I mean, the baskets are a great example because it's such a... Baskets are, to me, the most fascinating because there's a, there is a... Today, there's a Native California Basket Weavers Association. I and mean, that is an incredible, um, you know, incredibly vibrant uh, art form that's alive and well across Native mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. And, and the baskets, you know... It's just, and I, I document some of this, and a lot of and a lot of the stuff again it's, uh, in the book. I draw on archaeologists and and ecologists and and folks who are looking at folks who are working with the tribes and folks who are uh, again looking at the mature culture. So none of it, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is, admittedly, you know, this, I'm just pointing it out, you know, kind of to bring it into the historical record in right, a way. Right. Exactly. And uh, but the baskets are fascinating because you have. Again, it's such a such a. They're so versatile. I mean, there are mm-hmm. dozens of different types of baskets, and I, I have a couple. I have a, have a table in the book that just highlights a few of them. Right. You know that that are that are watertight that can be used for all kinds of things, that, and they're lighter, lightweight, and that you could carry goods in over long, long distances. Because that's right. the other thing. We're talking about vast distances, hundreds of miles, mm-hmm. that people are 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 carrying stuff um, on foot because they were, you know. In the pre-Columbian world, there weren't any draft animals or horses <laughs> right. um, in this part of the continent. So that, and, and of course, this somewhat hot, dry, desolate places, the Mojave Desert, uh, one of the most desolate places on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet you have an, an, an incredible uh, instance, or there's an incredible amount, uh, rather, of, of petroglyphs and rock art that's been documented. It's just just to show how many people were traveling through there and using it for, um, you know, primarily the, the petroglyphs are, are, um, you know, they are indicative of of spiritual 
spiritual, uh, yeah, the spiritual meaning that many non-native people will never have access to. Um, but you know, a lot of those, there are other rocks, there are other petroglyphs that point to watering holes or point to places you can, you know, find certain kinds of grasses, you know, almost places that help the traveler along type of, you know, that kind of, right. that kind of message, you know, if you will. So in that way, you know, that you see that you can see those same kinds of things happen, you know, in, in the Silk Road you know, or other kinds of long distance right, right. trading networks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and again, it's not to equate the two, but it's just to show that, you know, these are similar kinds of human communities that are experiencing this, this early modern world that are shaping this early modern world. So, uh, right. so yeah, and baskets were amazing because just the, the amount of, I mean, you know, many times baskets, and until recently, basket weaving we've seen is almost, it's like a, a craft almost, not really a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, an art. You know, you think of baskets, you know, it's, and again, it's just like that, it's like that, that, that stereotype that, you know, needs to be dismantled, right? Right. And I think uh, the, the thing about baskets, you have to, not only do you have to, uh, burn selectively certain types of grasses so that the right ones grow, the ones that you could bend and use, like deer grass, for instance. Then you have to harvest them in a certain way. Then you have to harvest, you know, uh, hundreds of them. I don't have the numbers off hand. I do have them in the book, though. One basket, you know, hundreds and hundreds of of uh, blades of grass have to be harvested. Right. And then you have to, you, then you have to weave them. So you, And you can imagine the, the, the labor and the, mm-hmm. the organization of communities around exactly. that. Exactly, right. Know, yeah, so. the organization it took to do it. Oh, yeah, exactly. right. I mean, exactly. I, and you mentioned to grow it, to grow the specific blade of grass, right? And then, right. And then exactly. to harvest it, right? And then to dry it out. And then, exactly. you know, so just the various stages that are involved in producing, yeah. uh, you know, this object, exactly. right? And and it's certainly, exactly. and, and viewed in that way, you totally now see, like you see, dispel the myth that this is just some neat type of craft where this is a desired commodity, right. a commodity exactly. that is, you know, very useful when you're traveling, say, from San Diego right. to, uh, right. you know, either southern Utah or the southwestern, yeah. you know, corner, the four corners area, right? right? It's, uh, right. I would see why right. this is so desirable. Certainly. Certainly, certainly. I mean, you, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but you just remind me of one of the other, just to follow up with this, your initial question about, you know, how he came up with this idea. And I mentioned the Colorado River. So in, in graduate school, I had a chance to read uh, James Brooks's wonderful book, um, Captain's and Cousins, which uh prize-winning book, which looked at the the, uh, the evolution and expansion of borderlands slavery in New Mexico and really cut across indigenous and Spanish and Mexican and American uh, communities. And uh, what I love about the book... One thing I love about the book are the maps, and um, one particular map showed a, a trail called the Old Spanish Trail, which mm-hmm. connected Santa Fe with Los Angeles. And um, I got me thinking about again we've been talking about this, this idea of, of goods and co- indigenous commodities, but also indigenous space. You know, what does that look like? And was the Old Spanish Trail actually a, an old you know, an indigenous trail? And how um, you know, what does that say about migration and movement and, and again, and the, the role of native autonomies in shaping um, Spanish colonial economies and then mm-hmm. later Mexican economies and American economies. So uh, I started doing a little more digging in, into that old Spanish trail, and um, what I found actually was really fascinating. One of the things I found is that there's this uh, following the um, old Spanish trail association, which commemorates 
the you know the beginning of this trail, just like other groups commemorate the Lewis and Clark Trail or the right. old Santa mm-hmm. Fe Trail. So there's that kind of uh, culture of commemoration. And uh, in fact, it was just recently, but George Bush, George W. Bush, uh, made signed an act called the Old Spanish Trail Preservation Act or something like that. And basically, the idea was to make it a national historic trail, and then get some you know, protection, and it gets certain types of funding, and um, it allows people to to keep the trail alive, and keep right. the memory of the trail alive. So, I, so and I, that cuts. And the reason I bring that up is just to, you know, again, it, it hammers in that idea of of uh, of the importance of public commemoration and 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 uh, and getting. Getting that history, re, re, re-examining the history of these of these borderlands, uh, many times happens through uh, through the public first, the monuments, and then, then the historians come after sometimes. Right. Uh, right. I agree. I'm sorry. With you. No, I, I agree. I can hear you fine. And I got a helicopter uh, overhead. Oh, uh, that's that's Hopefully fine. Hopefully, you can edit that out. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, you're you started to mention. Um, uh, in addition to you know the importance of public history, um, uh, as I see the one thing even in that that is sometimes lost in in public history, um, even in, in commemoration and whatnot, uh, particularly when we're looking at indigenous uh, Americans, yeah, indigenous right. communities and societies, is the influence they had on the region even after exactly. so-called contact. Right. So you started to right. talk about how you know there, the the indigenous networks and relationships of the. Uh, interior world, and, and this is right the, the subjects of you know say the middle of the book, um, how those networks and relationships shape you know the early colonial and then you know emerging Mexican state and American state economies. Can you can you talk about that a bit more um, about just how um, you know just influential the the both the trading networks and the relationships as well as the commodities produced by uh, the the indigenous within the interior world were on the emerging you know, you know, Pacific Rim trade and, you know, other, you know, sure. transcontinental trade, et cetera. Sure. I think, yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, I argue that they have an enormous impact. Um, and what, and one of the, one of the reasons is just because of the, you know, it's, uh, there's no denying that this region is, uh, climate is harsh and mm-hmm. it's, there are, you can't really stray off the path. You know, you, your, your life would, you know, your life, is at stake if you're, right. if you, you know, you run out of water or, you know, yeah. And the thing about Europeans, um, of course they, they bring their animals right. and right. animals need grass, they need water and that limits their, you know, that, that, that puts them on a very predictable path to get from one mission to the next or one town to the next. Right. And, um, so what you start seeing, and of course, and those roads that they, that they used were free, Colombian, many of them were pre-Columbia's indigenous roads because right, right. they were also connected along like water sources and places you can get food and, and shelter, et cetera. Um, so that automatically set up a, just the space. So these, these colonial economies really were inhabiting a, an indigenous space, just, just that alone. And then of course, then you have the, uh, the, the fact that, oh no, Oh, okay. Sorry, but I thought we died. No, you're good. Um, the fact that that they that these colonial economies also, of course, 
depended on indigenous labor to mm-hmm. produce crops and raise the animals. Um, so, and in, and they're in these very isolated, in particular Sonora, for instance, you know, very isolated places. The Spanish missions were that uh, were the majority of people were were from different indigenous communities, sometimes friendly and sometimes enemies. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was this complex uh, cultural, intercultural world that, that many Franc- Jesuits and Franciscans had to navigate, and some did well, and many, many, uh, many didn't. And then uh, uh, the other thing that really, where you see this real presence and importance of indigenous um, indigenous influence on these uh, kind of this early uh, colonialism, or at least on the Spanish settlements, because in many cases it wasn't there wasn't any colonialism. There's just attempts to to settle. Right. Um, and what you see is uh, the the role of increasingly of of borderlands slavery, and and the, the native people started wanting they started uh, getting access and and wanting uh, European products, like for instance right. wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, you had many native groups, uh, particularly along the Colorado River, where you have you have the predictable water source. Uh, the the Quichons, for instance. Um, were major major indigenous group. They they grew wheat. They and they grew pretty well. In fact, they still grow wheat today. Um, wheat and cotton on, on the on, on their on their land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you and of course horses and 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 particularly horses, but also cattle and, and sheep. You see that throughout the borderlands, uh, being not only a you know tool for Spanish expansion, but also indigenous. Expansions, you know, you have, of course, you have the Navajos who become really powerful. Uh, they have really powerful pastoral economies, sheep, sheep herders, and and we and, and other borderlands, and and also the borderlands I talk about. Uh, horse, you have a kind of a captive rating of both native and non-native, uh, particularly you know, primarily women and children from these from these towns, mm-hmm. um, and rated on horseback. So you have a you have an expansion of of this kind of force for for people, you know, the trade, but also uh, the horses enable that the expansion of that. So these European tools are being adopted by native people and shaping because of that borderlands expansion of these, of these indigenous borderlands through this uh, captivity network. You have European, Spanish, uh, and later Mexicans and Americans having to, you know, when they try to subdue it, they, they can't, you know, that's, they don't have that power. So it's, so, it, and you see that in California as well. The California economy was constantly under, um, under threat from these raiders, hence the, hence the title, traders and raiders. Right. So, you know, these raiders that are coming from the Colorado River, and you there's a lot of documentation on, just the preoccupation with, with particularly Mojave uh, raiders coming, and or the Mojaves were blamed, and, and the Utes were blamed for, for many of these raids. And, right, right. And truth, there are many many groups that were involved in it, um, but they would go in and poach some of the missions and, and the ranchos later on in in the basin, the LA basin, and in San Diego as well. So that's an indigenous. Centered or an indigenous, you know, influenced economy. That's, that's a driven. That's driven by native needs and, right. and 
uh, and desires and, and cultural values, et cetera. But of course, it's not truly indigenous in a way. It's, it's a borderlands. Right, right, right. It's a borderlands in the sense because, again, it's these are non-native uh, goods and, and animals. Um, and, of course, many Spaniards and, and, and later Mexicans and Americans benefited from captives, you know, had their own captives and, and, and took, took part in the trade. So, right, and where, where you uh, really see the Borderlands yeah. framework, I think, working uh, very well. Is, I mean, you know, you focus particularly on on these these two very important tools, right, trading and and raiding. And so, yeah. part of the you know that raiding was you know for the purpose of um, obtaining captives. And you you discuss yeah. in the earlier part of the book how captivity, you know, of course, was a pre-Columbian a feature of pre-Columbian society, and it, it worked yeah. more, but more along the forms of diplomacy. Yet. It yeah. transitions to a commodity um, right. as you know the borderlands economy develops, right? Yeah. Can you talk a bit yeah. more about that transition, about how central? Sure. Because I think it's you know a lot of this speaks to the the stereotypes uh, you know of uh, Native America and you know indigenous societies that uh, you know how we see them represented in in popular you know either movies or other types of you know popular. Uh, Products uh, or representations sure. that you know that's what Indians did, right? They were warriors and they were raiders right. and right. They, they stole people and they were just brutal. Right. But, <laughs> but right. uh, you know, but right. captivity again was a very important part and feature of this economy. And there was so they gotcha. were feeling a desire and a need. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. Yeah, I think this is where like a comparative lens is. So you know, I I'm, I'm a huge fan of as comparative. You know, thinking of comparative history. Because especially during this time period, because you could see similar part, you could see the kind of you know, borderland slavery, captivity, the idea of of captivity and diplomacy as being so central to so many parts of the world, uh, not just the state of America. Any places that were not controlled by a state, you know, that were on the edges, were on the borderlands. We mm-hmm. see this, in, of course, in, throughout West African societies and. Um, you can even see it in parts of Europe. You can see that, in, you know, throughout, uh, you know, throughout Asia. And uh, um, so this is a this is a, a mode of this is an economic and political. No, it's a political economic um, tool or device or uh, convention that's that you see in many parts of the world. So in that sense, it, it, first of all, it debunks the stereotype that natives were somehow uniquely, as you said, you know, that they this is where they had the, the monopoly on this, or that this, they invented this, or that this right. is what they were all about. And so you see, you know, the first thing you say is, well, it's happening in all other parts, all, all other borderlands throughout the, across the planet. Right. And, but the other thing is that um, the commodification part is what's key, is that native communities were 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 also you know, human communities that were being uh, drawn in to this kind of expanding, more regimented, for lack of a better word, capitalist uh, world system. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. just, I'm painting a broad brush here, but there is a you know the the idea of markets, global markets, and demand, and population, all these things going hand in hand to you know, increase increase the demand for certain types of products um, and and the people to to to, to um, produce many of those products you know. right. so I think um, you see that 
you see that in Borderlands, and of course, in, in, in you see that in child slavery. That's the most obvious um, example of that. But so I, I feel like that, um, you know, what one of the arguments I was trying to make is that that to to tell, tell a you know tell like a a story of these indigenous communities as as communities as individual communities, just like other borderlands communities that were getting swept up in this. Um, you know, they took this economic turn, this political turn. Uh, part of it was defensive, but part of it was also about expanding uh, their economic uh, or political influence. And then once once the choice was made, uh, it they just kind of fed on itself. It fed on, mm-hmm. you know, it, it reverberated and and expanded re- very very rapidly. Right. right. So, uh, and you can see that in you see it throughout history that, you know, history is not inevitable that there are, you know, there are choices that once they're made, it, it takes you down a certain path. Right. right. And, um, side is fall, you know, rise and fall around and communities right. disappear or thrive as a result of it. So, uh, you know, so much of what I'm trying to do in this book is really, again, as I said before, just to treat the, these actors as, you know, as historical figures, Right, uh, historical communities that lived in a certain time and a certain place, and uh, were in, influenced by these long-standing indigenous, this long-standing indigenous time and space, but also were becoming uh, like every other part of the world swept up into this global. You know, now we now live in a globalized, you know, globalized uh, society. Right, right? we're all, it's all, especially when you talk about. Uh, you know, the economy and food systems, as you mentioned before, you know, you start seeing that as well. Right. And as you're so, saying in the, you point out in the book, what, what they're experiencing on the ground here is, you know, as a result of being, you know, uh, drawn into or in, incorporated, whatever you want to say, uh, into a, a more this global system that is emerging is you have, uh, things like, right, land encroachment, food shortages, disease, so population right, decline. Right. All these are, you know, are, these are factors that are really driving the need for labor in this region as more people are Coming to it, you know, again, we're talking about, we're taking a long breadth of, you know, view of time here, 300 years, but increasingly yeah. that's what's happening, right? More people are coming into and settling the region and disrupting existing, um, you know, livelihoods and, and, you know, yeah. net trade networks and, uh, the production of certain commodities, right? So you have this, you, know, yeah. I mean, you mentioned livestock and livestock's a huge thing, right? We have yeah. just an eradication sure. of grazing lands and, and waterways and things right. of that sort, right? And um, and so this is really a, a strategic type of development, right? Uh, in yeah. in taking existing practice, and it, in in ways, captivity continued to be used as you know in in diplomatic situations. Sure. But um, really, the transition you explain is you know this this drive for the need for labor, um, you know, really makes it uh, a commodity that is being then serviced by you know this economy and thereby. The rating, and so that's why it's a it's a key feature of the rating. You have the captivity, and then you have the livestock rating is the the other portion of it, right? Exactly. I think uh, I mean you hit, you really hit it. The one thing I should say it's important to I mean because to think about this story. I mean it's true there is a you know the problem with the way Native American history uh, is told um, and taught, especially. Um, even when you're, even with folks who are sympathetic to the, the native story, so to speak, there's a, 
you know, there's a, an air of inevitability. Because after all, we don't live in Comanchetia. We don't live right. in the material right. world. You know, we exactly. live in, you know, United States, right? We don't even live in the borderlands. We live in, I mean, there, I mean, people argue that we, there are, obviously, like LA is a cultural borderlands in many ways. But <laughs> right, exactly. The, the, the political economic framework we're in right now is this nation state, the United States, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we think that that's the, you know, people end, have argued, uh, that we're, you know, we reached the end of history, right? That's kind of, <laughs> right. this is where we're at. And this is it. And obviously that's being upended. And I think what's exactly. important about it being upended for all kinds of reasons is Native America itself is still, you know, Native America is still here. There's a history that's still unfolding. Um, uh, it's uneven in terms of, you know, where, we, where you are in Indian country in terms of you know, how well Native people are experiencing some economic revival or cultural revival, but it's happening across Indian country. And that's a new, that's a completely different story, you know, so it's a completely right. different, um, and that is a, you know, that is so profound. I and mean, we're going to look, I mean, who knows how, what people will, will say in a hundred or 200 years, but it's a profound, um, you know, it, it forces us to, the historians to kind of try to, try to shy away from, or at least try to be careful around that idea of, yes, natives, they fought, you know, they, they were able to hold off, you know, forces of modernity and then, but then they succumbed to, you know, they succumbed to it. Right. And I think what I like about my story is, yes, there is that aspect. Um, again, cause you just look at the, the political reality, economic reality, but and demographic people reality, all the, right? Huh. Demographic reality as well, but the the fact that you can't discount the fact that these indigenous groups who have been here, been here in the Colorado River region, um, you know, for five hundred years, more or more, right? Um, because many of them didn't, many of them didn't show up there until these, these droughts and the right. So it wasn't that they were there right, forever, right. you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. That's that's inaccurate to say that as well. Right. Um, but so they were there. They've been here, and they're still there because they were able to hold off, and they were able to accomplish an extraordinary feat, which is to not get removed from, not not be removed, and also uh, to survive, and also to to survive and hold on to an incredibly vitally strategic part of the you know of the U.S. economy, right? Of you know, right. think of the Colorado River. That's, that is a, you know, that's a, something that should be, you know, and I'm not trying to, to exaggerate that, but right, there, right. there's something that's really important about that. That's, you know, it, it just makes you, it just, it, it makes you hold the, the history, it, you know, it tries to help you shy away from the, the inevitability. Story. Yes, yes, yes. You so, know, and and what I love yeah. about, okay, one of the, one of the points about that, just the, um, one of the, this, it, it's for a specific example in the book, I talk about the, the Quichon Revolt, mm-hmm. which occurred mm-hmm. in the uh, 1780s in, in the Colorado River. And this is an example of Spanish, uh, you know, using that their their colonial model, which was you know, the, with the missions, the Franciscan in particular missionaries uh, to establish the towns, kind of the anchors for expansion. Um, and they were invited. Uh, so, uh, Garces, who was the, the Franciscan uh, priest who um, established two missions 
mm-hmm. on the Colorado River in the Quechan territory. He was invited by Quechan leaders. It wasn't that he just showed up. You know, he they wanted him there, and they wanted him there because they wanted Spanish goods. They wanted to get into that. Their enemies, the the Maricopas and the Odom, these other indigenous groups, um, they they were getting access to Spanish goods, horses, it's you know, crops, et cetera. And they wanted to have access to that. So they invited them in and then they when they very quickly they realized they were not useful to them. Spanish mm-hmm. were not useful and then they basically burned their missions down and killed Garces and and uh, you know captured the rest of the folks, um and tra- you know, ultimately traded off, gave them back to the, to the Spanish, the captives. But they rejected that Spanish model. Right. They retained, and they were able to hold on to. You know, they weren't. They, they were never colonized by the Spanish. Uh, they were never colonized by by Mexico. And it wasn't until the 1850s um, that they, and they still, they still live today. You know, they're still right. right where they were when the Spanish came. So that's an important story. Uh, it's an important story to, to tell, I think. No, I agree. And I appreciate you making that point because that's, that's typically how I, what I think of, uh, you know, when I'm reading, you know, works like yours in borderland studies and it's the, the, the trouble with how to write bookend the study, right. That does not right, fall right, into exactly. the inevitable decline. Yeah. Uh, the population is lost. It's gone. That type of, right. um, right. You know, uh, typical inevitable turn that, that a lot of yeah. the, the, the 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 more the traditional narratives that take, although academic scholarship pushes back against that. And so I appreciate you how you're right. bringing up that. Yes, that is a key point to bring out. There's there's certainly been a, a change in how these people have had to live their lives. Of course, that was nothing new. They were these people were fluid. Their societies were fluid. They were evolving. They were adaptive. But the point that yes, you know, they are still there. Um, and right. I mean, that even right. brings up a whole other question that there is now then so much more scholarship, right? That needs to be done on these people, yeah. you know, to now bridge, yeah. uh, and I'm sure that's being done in, in various ways, but that then bridges, you know, the, the mid 19th century, a lot of these studies have kind of end in the mid 19th century yeah. uh, or yeah. late 19th century, even to, you know, the yeah. present, you know, what have the communities yeah. been doing now, and, and you started to mention some yeah. of these social justice issues at the beginning of our conversation yeah. that you're involved yeah. with and working with them, that, that that's that's the history that's going on right now. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think I mean, what's amazing, what's exciting now is there is a there is actually a flourishing, and in, particularly in Native studies. You know, historians are, are uh, catching up to 20th century. I mean, it's been, you know, there's been many, many great, 20th century studies of, of Indian country, all different tribes. And, uh, but I think, uh, you know, native studies and, and kind of indigeneity and, and thinking about, uh, indigenous archives and sources. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's really flourishing. I think, um, um, there's a lot of, you know, theoretically, especially, I think there's lots of, uh, folks and native scholars in particular who are right. advancing, uh, and, and, and forcing, uh, not just historians, but people who are, you know, museum curators and, and that's right. more forcing is not a good, you know, uh, facilitating the re-examination mm-hmm. of, of collections and, and exhibits and monuments. I think this is where the frontier, frontier is a bad word, but this is where the, you know, this is the next phase of, of, um, of scholarship and, and of understanding right. what Native history is, is the public part, the commemoration part. Right. I think, Right. Ultimately, 
I mean, for any history, and this is where Native history isn't unique, but again, I think it's particularly so because of this, just this particular history that um, there is, and because of the government-to-government relationship, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. The, that, that misinformation and kind of myths and instead of history misinforms uh, political decisions by Congress, Supreme right. Court, policymakers, right. et cetera, who rely on, you know, aren't relying on good history right. uh, in some cases. So no, it's, I think uh, that's the, this is where the implications are huge for, for, for Native Americans, but also for, you know, for all of Americans, you know, right. I think, uh, and again, you can see this in, in other, other groups of Americans, right. That exactly. Seeking right. to, seeking restoration, you know, thinks restorative justice, seeking, uh, reparations, whatever it might be, but using history, good history as a way to, to do that. I, I, I agree fully. It's, um, I think yeah. I view it more as, uh, to some extent, I, I'm trying to figure out how to word this too. I, I'm, I, I cringe at times when, uh, just when I think of how things, uh, you know, subfields say like, you know, Native American history or, or my field, Latino studies, Chicano studies, whatnot, uh, how these things are kind of compartmentalized and at times yeah, right. viewed outside of, you know, U.S. history. Yeah, or their field, you know, it's, so for, for example, right. explain what you do. Exactly. Someone's like, oh, you're a Native American historian. You're, right. a, you're right. not necessarily right. an American historian, right? And, right. and my exactly. kind of view is, well, the way history is, history has typically been done, it's all like ethnic history, right? I mean, if you're studying right. colonial right. America on the Eastern seaboard and it's, you're right. studying the, the founding of the, you know, the, the founding fathers of the constitution, that's ethnic history, right? Because <laughs> you're covering right. exactly. just one group a lot exactly. of times. Um, and so anyways, exactly. the, the, the bigger point I'm trying to make is that, yes, this all forms and it's important. Good history, um, helps to revise the national narrative and to revise it yeah. accurately, right? Not this, yeah. these aren't necessarily political projects, but these are really viewing this land, uh, whether it's North America right, broadly, um, yeah. uh, and the parts that eventually become the nation state of the United States or Mexico or whatever, not, yeah. but as the histories, these collective histories that they, they really are. And so it, yes, it takes all this, this research and good history, good in-depth study. And you're right. Yeah. Unfortunately, it takes time for it to bubble up to the surface, but, uh, you know, hopefully studies like yours and others, um, they, they are doing yeah. that, you know, and you're seeing that you see them in public history commemorations, um, yeah. you know, and monument building, and maybe that's the yeah. way it starts. And then it, you know, it gets into K through 12 curriculum and, and fizzles yeah, its way up. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I hate the idea of trickle up yeah, history, but <laughs> exactly. No, I think it's so, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it goes both ways. So I think, um, you know, good, unfortunately, good scholarship has, has trickled down, so to speak, to, to some of the cultural institutions, you know, museums, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, you know, there is a trickle up effect too, I think, um, where, you know, you can, Scholars and public can meet halfway right, um, right. some of these things because you know ultimately it's larger than just scholarship, right? It's larger exactly. than telling the right story. It's, exactly. it's going to be the vehicle for transfer culture, you know, for the transformation. And for the U.S. to the United States has to live up to you know you mentioned the founding fathers, right? And the the, the sort of founding this, you know, for us to to as Supposed to living it, who are citizens and living in the United States, to um, you need to address these historical injustices mm-hmm. uh-huh. um, because we'll never get beyond that. If you, until you, I mean, it's obvious you won't get beyond it until you address it. 
Right. And to dress, you need to have the right history, or, the, or not to say the right history, but the better informed, more inclusive history. Right. Um, you know, and that allows, that allows for that healing. It allows for the, you know, for some of that, there are some very real, sometimes economic, um, uh, you know, reparations of in one form or the other that, that need to happen, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. term, for, for us to address this, these kinds of, or, you know, what is a, a like in South Africa, you know, it's a uh, truth and reconciliation commission, that kind of thing. I think that that's, that's a good way to, that's a good, that's a great model for, for addressing the historical, the, the past, and then also creating some lasting change. Right. Like, you know, that's, there's, uh, you know, there's the great. Mo- I mean, Germany is a great example of, you know, of a society that's uh, not perfectly, but has, you know, faced up to the history. But you know, whenever you walk around, I've never been to Berlin, but many people have, have talked about this. Say, so, you know, you go around Berlin, you can't go more than 100 feet without seeing some type of monument to, hmm. you know, the Nazi genocide. You know, right. and um, mm-hmm. there is a, you know, there's a, a way that the culture has, um, has tried to address again not perfectly but addressing ways that the US has not addressed right you know, right obviously in America mm-hmm. slavery uh, immigration you know the immigration issues etc and it kind of just trickled it trickled up the policies right. in that way as well and, it, and that there's a way in to your face. yeah and that, and that there's a way to do that effectively that that you know gets past um, you know the the hesitance that comes with oh you know that the this history promotes guilt, right? right? Like this historical exactly. guilt, exactly. as if I'm I'm somehow right. responsible for what yes. happened 300 years right. ago. But that's that's a lot of the pushback that we get from yes. right. this history. And well, what do you mean? Why should we? Why do we need to address this issue now? Right. Shouldn't we just leave it under the rug? Uh, do you just want to make me feel guilty, or you know, and and, and that type right. of perspective, you know, I think is um, as this this is kind of one of those books that shows right as as people have. Intermixed over, you know, three hundred, five hundred, a thousand years or so. Like, I think we can get beyond the whole guilt part of it, right? <laughs> it's, right. Exactly. You know, part of the history and getting the historical record correct and and more, um, uh, more accurate, if you will, is about right. moving beyond all of that, right? You yes. said, and, and really viewing each other in, as right. much more broadly as uh, reconciliation. Right. I think reconciliation right. is a good. That's a great uh, word. You're right. It's a good word because it's it's more than just you know. Peace and harmony. It's not about oh yeah, but it's not guilty, right? Guilt is a it's an it's a it's a debilitating. Doesn't do anything. No, no, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, we're, it's, and, and, obviously, you guilt like in a court of law. You know, we have a adversarial court. That's how our court system, our mm-hmm. legal system, is, is framed. That makes sense. Um, so there is that, but beyond that, you know, I think the uh, guilt is it just it allows you to turn your head. Because you don't mm-hmm. want to feel guilty. Right. Reconciliation, right? Like you said, it's is a good point. word to, you know, um, transcend it. It transcends mm-hmm. it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, so. thanks so much uh, for, uh, man, this was just a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. No, I before, appreciate it. I'm honored to uh, talk. And before we uh, wrap up entirely, I just want to give you a moment. You know, I know this project has, has been done for a little while, and I, I know you have new things on the horizon. Just you don't mind just take a minute or two and, and talk about uh, what are you what is it you're working on now? Sure. Well, I was thinking about retiring. After I have this interview, <laughs> I think I'll be able to sell as many books as I ever wanted. Thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no, seriously. I, uh, well, it's two things. One, I'm working on a book right now called uh, Food Frontiers, mm-hmm. uh, Borderland Ecologies, and Indigenous and Euro-America. So it's it's basically picks up from where the, this book left off um, in terms of thinking about the borderlands, of course, but thinking about how food systems in particular uh, shaped yeah, food, thinking about food systems as a lens, and when I say food systems, I mean not just the f- food products, but the the infrastructure, the right, right. The, the, the kind of consumption and demand cycle, you know, consumption and production cycle, if you will, mm-hmm. the you know, the roads, again, the infrastructure, the technology, and the, the kind of particular uh, regional climate, let's say the ecology, how all of that's kind of how a food system operates. Right. So every city or every region has a food system. And now, of course, we're part of a global food system as well. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I'm interested in looking at the evolution of that and thinking about the North, thinking about North America in particular, uh, colonial or early American, uh, pre-industrial, if you will, in North America through that lens, the food system lens. What you see is, um, you see a flipping of some narratives again. You see how indigenous producers uh, and borderland communities are able to dictate certain political economic relationships. You see um, different dire- direction of food products and, and technology going in certain directions that um, kind of counter some of the, the narrative of east to west, you know, that, that, that U.S. narrative. So it allows you to access, and then, of course, it speaks to today, you know, Food and food systems and and the environment are such a you know, uh, it's such a timely obviously it's always timely but we're, it's on the minds of everyone when thinking about water and thinking about how our consumption patterns are shaping the ecology of the planet and how it's we need to rethink that so some ways it's kind of how I, I have an eye on a on a on some of the contemporary policies issues, but mm-hmm, using mm-hmm. that, using that again, a historical lens to think about that. Cause there's been tons of stuff written about modern food systems, you know, kind of the post war, post war right. to industrial. So it's kind of looking at really thinking about, well, what did, what did the world, what did North America and the world look like, um, before that, you know, was, were there similar patterns of mm-hmm. exchange and what does that tell us about, what does it tell us about those patterns? Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of the, that's the one thing. Another thing I'm working on is is more directly related to to this book in some ways. Um, is uh, it's actually a, a collaboration with my dissertation advisor, uh, Lisbeth Haas, who, as I mentioned before, she's been doing really wonderful work on on uh, Native California, and uh, we're trying to uh, put together a, uh, a series of essays by different scholars uh, who look at these issues we've been talking about, Indigenous. Uh, native, native studies, or indigenous history, and asking the question about you know what is a about indigenous archives. How how can we tell how can we tell more inclusive, uh, better histories about native uh, right, America right. So through the archives? How how do we use archives? How do we think of the archives as more you know a more more copious way of understanding the a more inclusive way of understanding the archives? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of question we're asking, and we're hopefully we're going to get to a bunch of uh, folks who are at the cutting edge that are working on these things and have a, a great uh, theoretically driven book around that, a series of essays around that. Oh, Those great. are the two yeah. things 
that I'm that I'm uh, working on right now. Well, they both sound fascinating, and particularly you know the uh, you know the formation of a you know an indigenous archive and. And, yeah, you know, it really yeah. gets at the root of your book, right? Getting, um, you know, switching that, uh, you know, the, the, the um, you know, the, that European to indigenous periphery, right? Uh, core, you have the right, in, European right. core, indigenous periphery, and flipping that around, exactly. right? To indigenous core, exactly. European periphery, exactly. right? And, uh, and that's very difficult with this, with the scant, uh, record, um, you know, as yes. we consider records at least in our European, uh, various, very imperialist inflected mindsets. <laughs> um, but, right, uh, that's exactly. true. So that sounds like a great project. And, uh, yeah. you know, Nat, just want to thank you again for coming on to New Books on Latino Studies, taking time out of your, your day to discuss Traders and Raiders. We appreciate it. It's a, it's a great book. And, and thanks again for your time. Thank you. And thanks for your great work. Thanks again for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And I hope you have enjoyed my conversation today with Natale Zapia, author of Traders and Raiders, The Indigenous World of the Colorado Basin, 1540 to 1859, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. If you enjoyed our conversation, we appreciate your feedback and you can reach us by emailing newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com or uh, tweeting us or commenting on our Facebook page. Also, if you're interested in purchasing Dr. Zappia's book, you may do so by following the Amazon link on our New Books and Latino Studies page.